This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at a recent webinar on IT modernization and the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions, or EIS, program sponsored by ACT-IAC. The panel featured Alan Hill, the now former Deputy Assistant Commissioner in the Office of IT Category at the General Services Administration, Jeff Flick, the Deputy Director for Service Delivery Division at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Gary Washington, the Chief Information Officer at the Department of Agriculture, and David Noggle, a Senior IT Specialist at the Social Security Administration. First, we hear from Alan Hill, formerly of GSA and now with the FCC. 2015, not only was that when, from a Qatar perspective, but also EIS was awarded. And so timeline-wise, from 2015 today, we're now seven years into since the award. From a date perspective, what we did, so we had all the agencies involved in the interagency group and where we set timelines, milestones. One of those milestones was September 30th of 2019 for purpose of task order awards. So those agencies that didn't award that time frame, they're going to have less time for purpose of transition. Fast forward to, for purpose of milestones, March 31st of 2022 was set for the purpose of 90% of the service to disconnect off the legacy contracts. So as of today, as of March of 31st, 55.7% are disconnected. The numbers doesn't sound very good in comparison to what the, the milestone was. That's not reflective of agency progress, though, because depending on what their transition and how they're doing, the disconnect of legacy service doesn't indicate transition progress. That's a different for the uh, CIO shop to do. 100% is to be disconnected by September 30th. That was the, uh, the milestone set. Of the 222 agencies, though, most of these are small. 118 have met the 90% disconnect. So that's good. You know, we, particularly the small agencies moving. Of them, we have about 99 or 100% disconnected. That's important. Fast forward to May 31st of 2023. That's when the contract is to... Yeah. Okay. There's been two extensions for the legacy contracts uh, of the three years each. So the intent of, of May of 2020 to May of 2023 was for purpose of doing actual transition activities. We are, we've sent out for agencies to uh, review a MOU that focuses on extending, uh, implementing a continuity of service, which is going to give one more year going from May of 2023 to May of 2024. And two things would need to happen. That is one, complete the transition, or two, take other actions to ensure services are going to continue if they need to go beyond May of 2024, because the contracts will definitely end at that time. All right, Alan, one quick follow-up, because you know I got to ask one. When you talk about the continuity of services and, and the extension, and you said you're right in the middle of the MOU, so this may be a, maybe a question that's unanswerable yet, but do you get a sense of how many agencies will need it? Or do you even would you even guess that it's it's ten percent of the agencies, eighty percent of the agencies do do of agencies remaining, not the not the small ones that the hundred and eighteen obviously that have met the transition? So we don't know the number yet, but we have we have had some agencies come back and say they they intend to sign the MOU, without a doubt. We've set a timeline for them to August to be able to respond back to us to say if they intend to do that. The September 30th date is the date of that deadline to actually sign the MOU. But we at least we're trying to get a gauge with those agencies that intend to, to do it. 
my guess is that most agencies that are lagging either haven't awarded or have awarded and just take a, it has a long transition time frame will sign that MOU. And, and just one follow up on that is, is there, are there things that GSA is doing today to accelerate some of this transition? Or a lot of it is on people like Jeff and David and Gary, which we'll hear from in a minute, to really accelerate it. There's only so much you all can do because GSA has always been in that tough spot. For those agencies, for example, we've met with some certain agencies and had joint discussions with the vendors and everything to walk through things. But there's a limit in that aspect. But the initial support of, of the agencies and providing an inventory to the acquisition support and things like that, that time has passed now. And so now it has more from the program perspective, executing those type of things. There are some common things that we will advise agencies, for example, for you to get services in place, get the work orders executed, get them out there, get the service to start a provision. If you don't do that, there are some agencies that have been a little tied up in, in, in nuances of things of like, you know, do I have a nine prefix added in or something like that, or are or, or maybe not knowing exactly where the DMARC is and in the facility or something like that and, and doing that. Those things can be adjusted. But if you don't put the work order in, the, the, the vendor can never get started. All right. Seems so simple. Put the work order in. Let's go. Let's get started. But it, sometimes it's a lot harder. Speaking of uh, progress, let's start with David from SSA. Uh, once you lead us off, you guys are, are one of those agencies that maybe are ahead of uh, others. Tell us something we don't know, David. We are just over 66% uh, disconnected or transitioned. The way we got there, you know, I'll talk a little bit about our strategy back in the day. We had over 50 contracts between LSAs, WITs, networks, et cetera. We decided to consolidate all of those contracts into two big projects, one for our data network and one for our voice services. We also decided to lump all of our non-GSA agreements or contracts into those two big projects. So centralization consolidation was a big strategy that we decided early on. So that's what we decided to do. So early on, Alan mentioned that GSA was offering acquisition support. And one of the things that we discussed early on was we didn't really want to be in the mix of all the other federal agencies to vie for that one acquisition support strategy. So we convinced our leadership to budget some money, let us go out and award our own acquisition support contracts, which we did. We awarded two different contracts and it really proved to be beneficial because um, I believe as a say, we were the first agency to submit our RFPs for scope review for GSA. So have an emphasis on that early um, strategy of, of uh, developing, working hard early, um, really proved beneficial. So we submitted our RFPs early, and then um, we awarded our data contract in the fall of 2019. Fortunately, it was for the incumbents that we had on the previous contract, so that certainly made our transition easier. And then nine months later, um, we transitioned all of our data services, and that actually realized $80 million of savings per year. So obviously making our leadership very happy with that number. And so the, uh, in the winter of 2020, we awarded the other contract for our voice services. We're continuing to transition those services today. Like I said, we're just over 66%, but we definitely plan to be disconnected all of our services by the end of this fiscal year, even though we're at 66%. We've had some in-house projects that have caused some impacts to that transition. 
but they um, were starting to move. And so we're making good progress and um, we should be on schedule for, for transition by the end of the fiscal year. All right. That's excellent news. So the, the couple quick follow-ups for you, David. Let's start with that, that savings piece. That's actually the best news I've heard from EIS because Alan has been banging the drum. You will save money, I promise. And and I think a lot of agencies maybe go, okay, I'll see it. I'll believe it when I see it. And here we go. Now we can believe it. Is that savings just because the, you're getting better capabilities at a lower price? Or are you getting savings because you've consolidated can, can you maybe just offer some, some high-level areas of how those savings kind of came together? Yeah, both. So we actually end up doing our modernization on the last transition from FTS 2001 to networks. After that was done, we modernized our data network to provide basically 100 meg access to uh, each one of our offices uh, across the nation. And so we already went through that modernization. But obviously, the pricing on EIS was much better. So, you know, um, the economies of scale and, and going through that um, transition, the pricing on EIS from the vendors, that was the biggest part or, or biggest contributor to our savings. And the other side of this is now that you're working through the voice. What's the biggest, you mentioned some, some internal stuff from a voice perspective. What's been the biggest challenge so far around getting the voice transition? Is it just the numbers? Is it inventory? Is it just, hey, you need time and th- this takes time? Yeah, you can imagine that having our services spread across 50 plus contracts, nothing was really centralized. We had a lot of people doing their own thing, keeping inventory on spreadsheets. It was kind of like all over the place. So going through that and centralizing our business processes from an ordering, invoicing, asset management perspective, that's really helped us get a hold of what was in front of us. So that was probably the biggest hurdle. Right now, we're kind of hitting our groove, um, understanding that. I would say one of the biggest hurdles we have right now is this hybrid environment of transitioning to a new environment and still having some of our stuff on old contracts kind of leaves our customer base a little confused. You know, where is my service? Is it on a legacy contract? Is it on the new one? So that's kind of like a lesson learned. You know, if we had to do it all over again, we'd be a little more prepared. But we're, like I said, we're starting to hit our groove and we feel comfortable where we're at right now. We have to take a break. You're listening to an excerpt of a panel I moderated on IT modernization and the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions or EIS program sponsored by ACT-IAC. I'm Jason Miller and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at a recent webinar on IT modernization and the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions, or EIS, program sponsored by ACT-IAC. The panel featured Alan Hill, the now former Deputy Assistant Commissioner in the Office of IT Category at GSA, Jeff Flick, the Deputy Director for the Service Delivery Division at NOAA, Gary Washington, the CIO at the Department of Agriculture, and David Noggle, a Senior IT Specialist at the Social Security Administration. For this segment, we first hear from Gary Washington, the CIO at USDA. We awarded our contract on December 16th, 2021 to Lumen. We wanted to make the award in, in, in March of last year, but we had to go through a protest period. So that delayed us about nine months, unfortunately. But uh, basically what we're doing is we're getting from seven, we're going to consolidate from 17 networks down to one across USDA. And, um, you know, we anticipate uh, having a cost avoidance over 10 years of something around $734 million. 
but um, we have a project plan. We've been working with our contractor and we're aggressively working towards meeting the, the milestones that we have to meet. Uh, we're at approximately 54% a disconnect rate currently. So we're going to try to aggressively get that up. But the primary thing is we're going to transition to a managed service kind of model where we can like modernize the network periodically like we're supposed to and provide better service. Because as you know, we're all over the country and we have an international presence as well. And DSA has been a great partner with us in that regard. But um, we're very excited about this. You know, we have some challenges like the supply chain and everything else, but we're trying to work with our vendor to work around that so that we can be very aggressive in meeting uh, this September 30th milestone. So a couple of things, Gary, the managed service model, let's delve into that maybe a little bit. I think that's an interesting look. This is something that a lot of agencies talk about. I don't hear a lot of people saying we're actually going in that direction. What made you all decide that was the right model for you beyond, obviously, you can modernize your network more often. And, and then how big of a change is it for you all? Like, is this is this part of the reason that this may be taking a little longer than you hope beyond, of course, the protest? I don't think that's the reason it's taking longer than we hope. But it is going to be a change for USDA. We want to take advantage of the advanced technologies that EIS has to offer, like SD-WAN, for an example. And in addition to that, the hybrid model we're going to have is going to be a partnership between the contractor and USDA. But we want to make sure that we have the expertise to manage this new model across USDA and be able to manage in a consolidated environment. So there's going to be a lot of change, um, roles and responsibilities for change in terms of you know, who's responsible for what in terms of our infrastructure as well. So we're really excited about that. And I know, for instance, uh, covering you and USDA for several years, that effort to consolidate networks from 17 to 1 has been something I, I think I can go back to a couple uh, CIOs before you that have talked about this. So, so I'm going to ask you, Gary, this is a hard question. Is it really happening this time? Oh, it's going to really happen. And I, I'm going to make sure I'm going to be here make sure it does happen. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, we're very excited about that. Our leadership is excited about it. Actually, I briefed the secretary on this last week. So it's just really a matter of, you know, getting our equipment and making sure that, you know, we, we pick up the pace in terms of actually implementing this solution. All right. Good news. I, I figured you were going to tell me it's going to happen. I didn't think you were going to say, no, Jason, I think we're not going to do it this time. So uh, no, I, I no, we, got, we got a lot riding on this. So yes. <laughs> it's going to happen. All right. And finally, uh, Jeff Flick, you've been very patient. Thanks you for uh, being patient. Jeff from NOAA, tell us something we don't know about your transition and, and the work you're doing to modernize your network. We're dealing with a, a vendor count of about 260 between our, our GSA vendors and commercial vendors for just telecommunications. So from a scale perspective, EIS really provides an opportunity for us to consolidate that. Uh, and that's one of our primary objectives here is getting that down under, you know, let's say 10 vendors. Uh, across our telecommunication spectrum. How, how do we do that? We've let a, a contract, uh, AT&T was our awarded vendor. We have not, not progressed very far at this point. Lots of reasons. Probably the biggest though is, is the appropriation. It, it's been a struggle for us, especially in the large programs, to get that synced up with the, with the schedules of contracts, but we're finally aligned and, and moving forward now. But Alan, absolutely, we will be taking advantage of that continuation of service opportunity. Uh, and we're also looking at additional contracts to support anything that happens to miss the end of that. All right. So that's an amazing number. 260 different telecommunication vendors participating somehow in, in, for NOAA. 
I'm going to ask maybe it's a silly question, Jeff, but how did that happen? Is it just something that grows up over time? Is it something where there was no centralized view? Uh, from your perspective, did that surprise you? I'll start there and then ask you maybe to, to offer a little bit of, of how you got to where you are. Absolutely. It, had, it was very shocking when I, when I did that analysis. And it has evolved over time. One of the missions within NOAA is providing the uh, NOAA the radio and the alert notifications. And those antennas are placed based on population. And so finding the right areas geographically to place those antennas isn't an easy thing. And sometimes the farmer that owns an antenna is different than the co-op in the county that actually owns the phone system or is providing the, the rural service to that antenna. So very quickly, you know, do we exceed, you know, the primary carriers, but we end up in, you know, Jeff's telephone service out of a small town in Iowa. And, and that's really what generates that. We've got uh, 1,130, I believe, uh, no other radio antennas around the country. So very quickly, we touch a lot of very small communities and, and very diverse uh, vendor space. Jeff, one last quick follow-up uh, from you, and then we'll hopefully get some audience questions as they come in. You mentioned some of the syncing up schedules, contracts, appropriations. Is is the challenge with, with for you all at NOAA is having the money to move from, from this broad contract to consolidated ones while keeping the lights on so you're, you're it's the old changing the tire while you're still driving t- type of is, – is that, that's why that this appropriation is, is, is a challenging thing. It is. The, the surge uh, requirement for funding to move uh, something like this, you know, is least the cost of our annual telecommunications budget. So for doubling that during a, these types of transition periods is, is quite challenging for the agency to take out of hide and collect and just coordinating that with Congress and appropriations has presented some real challenges. You know, a lot of the smaller programs and, and smaller mission areas, you know, they can absorb that and do that, you know, in increments. Uh, it's the larger programs that really uh, struggle. So to Jeff's point, there's a lot of times in terms of transition when you're, even whether it's a like-for-like or a modernization approach, you have to run in parallel and you got to make sure those things are up and running before you turn the, the light switch off on one and turn the other one on to operations and stuff. So Jeff is really on point. There's savings at the end, but in order for those things to occur, it requires, you got to consider blackout dates. You got to consider a lot of things before you can do that. And so organizations like Social Security Administration, USDA, and NOAA, they have very complex infrastructure. And, and to Jeff's point about multiple type vendors, even even for David and, and Gary, the technologies that were out there supporting and why there were so many contracts is because local exchange carriers, what you had to do to get those type of technologies at those endpoints has changed now from, from what it was and back then and when the contracts were created to how it is today. We have enterprise capabilities now to be able to do things, but to deliver down to the endpoints and stuff, much different than what we had to use of those things. So the technology has changed to where now we can take a more enterprise approach to managing things too. I think that's a really important point that gets back to the conversation I was having with Gary a little bit about managed services. And Gary, maybe you could offer a little more about that. Is is one of the things that attracted you to managed services was the point that, that Alan just brought up is this idea that technology has changed. You don't necessarily need these local carriers. The enterprise is so much different today than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago when we talked about networks and FTS 2001. 
that's it. And in addition to that, I, I know at USDA, uh, we wanted to get to a point where we could provide our customers information on how the network was performing and how much they are using it, which is what we don't have the capability to do today. And in addition to that, uh, be able across USDA, take advantage of the opportunity to uh, get on, truly get on a periodic refresh cycle in terms of modernizing our infrastructure, you know, and how we support the network as well. So, you know, we're, we're taking advantages of several uh, aspects of this program. We have to take a break. You're listening to an excerpt of a panel I moderated on IT modernization and the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions, or EIS, program sponsored by ACT-IAC. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at a recent webinar on IT modernization and the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions, or EIS, program sponsored by ACT-IAC. The panel featured Alan Hill, the now former Deputy Assistant Commissioner in the Office of IT Category at GSA, Jeff Flick, the Deputy Director for the Service Delivery Division at NOAA, Gary Washington, the CIO at the Department of Agriculture, and David Noggle, a Senior IT Specialist at the Social Security Administration. For this segment, the panelists take questions from the audience. How are you accounting for that refresh cycle in your planning? Yeah, well, fortunately, we have other offices, other divisions that look at future technologies like SD-WAN, any of that stuff. You know, so they're always in the labs and doing market research to look at those technologies as they come. And, you know, we have good enough communications between our groups that when they see something on the horizon that they'd like to institute into our um, networks that, um, you know, we plan appropriately, we budget for it test the waters and then start to install it if it, if it becomes, if it comes to that. Let me maybe back out of that question then. Let me try again. And how are you future-proofing your network to take in that new technology as it comes up? Is, are there things you guys are talking about today that said, okay, today we're at X and, and we want to get to Y in three to five years. How do we make sure we can get to Y without a huge lift and dealing with all the, the challenges that come with, with major changes to network? Have you, have you, Built that into your plan a little bit? These task orders are carrying us to what, 2032. We're pretty <laughs> stable. We're pretty stable right now and we're fast enough right now that we don't, as far as I know, we're not looking to change anything um, heavily. We're pretty good as we are right now. So there's nothing that, to my knowledge, is on the near horizon that we'll be doing any heavy lifting with. All right. Well, I mean, that means you're future-proofing already, which is excellent. Jay, yeah, like I said, we, we kind of already future-proofed, quote-unquote, during the last transition or after the last transition where we went to 100 meg Ethernet is right. pretty much everywhere, everywhere we could. Um, we are looking into 100 gig connections for our backbone between our data centers and uh, SDPs. We're not to that point yet, but that's one of the things that's in our pipeline that are network engineering folks are looking at. Jason, I, I could like to peel back that onion, what you're talking about, the difference between managing your own infrastructure versus using managed services. And a believer of as a service, the technology has changed from traditional point-to-point old type circuits. You now have a variety of ways for communications to be offered down to an agency. Uh, you have wired and wireless. 
being worried about that cable infrastructure, uh, I, I don't see why we need the cable infrastructure to support endpoints anymore. Uh, we can, for the most part, move wireless. Even probably all of us to sit right now sitting on a Wi-Fi device plugged into a Ethernet cable. In that investment in doing so, but it, the technologies are drastically changing. For example, 5G right now. 5G can deliver enterprise-type speeds to for agencies. So making the decision between moving to to using wired or wireless services in a managed service environment, what you care about is the service being delivered and you focus less on the technology. 5G will be replaced with 6G. 10 gigs goes to 100 gigs or whatever. Forgetting about those type of things and, and knowing that you just focus on the services. How do you manage an infrastructure of a, of a large scale and ensure modernization, lifecycle management's done across uh, to, to where you're not concerned about a router going to end of life. What that device is, what you care about is that service being delivered to your customers. Also, for example, how things are changing from a technology perspective. I'm gonna bring quantum computing, for example. We now, do, now already started looking at GSA, quantum proofing the network. Why is that important? In a managed service environment, you take the traditional way of what you do in AES encryption of your infrastructure, and now you overlay it with quantum proofing uh, encryption. Those type of things. In a managed service environment, what you, as those standards get implemented, the vendor who's providing those services is focused on just delivering those capabilities, and you're not worried about how they do that as long as they're meeting their service levels agreements. Jeff, let me ask you uh, to jump in here a little bit and talk about Noah, because one of the things that Noah relies on, and Alan brought up 5G, Noah, Noah has tons of sensors all over the, you mentioned the antennas. How are you starting to look at, okay, where is the future heading for you as well? What are some of those, whether it's 5G or, or, or advanced Wi-Fi that you're looking at going, all right, that can come through EIS in time. Are there some discussions that you're having? Oh, absolutely. We have run uh, a couple of pilots with a couple of carriers and, you know, we're seeing some successes there. What we're, I won't say struggling, but what we're working through the process on is the telecommunications and or the access layer is different than the sensor itself. And so we're working on modernization programs also with the sensors to make sure that we, you know, can marry the, the access layer telecommunications properly with the sensor and with how that overall communication solution. Some of that architecture is I would say, I want dated, but complex. And so we've got to work through those issues to be able to maintain a, a very, very high level of availability because of the, the risk to property and life, right? I mean, that, that's our mission there with those warnings and notifications is, you know, if the circuits go down or if a technology isn't available, you know, what happens to people, right? Do they get seven minutes of, of warning notifications or three minutes? Or do they have to look at alternatives or no notifications, right? And people die in those scenarios. So we, we take that very seriously, and we've got to work through those very complex issues. Today, we're not using TCP IP because it's not that reliable of a communications threat, right? You drop packets all the time in, in standard IP technologies. But those sensors and some of those technologies are still relying on a, a 100% communications, right? And they don't deal well with dropped packets. So there, there has to be some changes there. 
We actually have our first question. There you go. Look at that. Jeff, this is for you. What's the projected cost savings for NOAA once vendors are consolidated? Is there, any, is there anything you can share? It was an anticipated annual savings, you know, in the $10 million range of, of just straight out savings on an annual basis uh, based on projections. That being said, that is like for like with some modernization comparison from our current environment to a projected future environment, right? So that's a, that's a very loose number. In reality, what's going to happen with those savings, right, is that we're going to satisfy and grow our, our capacities. So I don't anticipate that we'll spend less on telecommunications, but I do anticipate that we'll get more for the dollar that we're spending. So I, I don't think that in the end there will be any savings, but more capability. I think that's a really important point. Maybe it's something that Gary or David could jump in here on as well. A lot of this can just be reinvested to network modernization. And then maybe I'll start with Gary on this one. Gary, USD has been on this path for quite a while of modernization. Uh, have you found, whether it's through EIS or just overall, that the savings itself are, there's some savings, but mostly it's cost avoidance and better services for the same dollar. What are some of the trends you're seeing internally? I think a, not all of it, but a lot of it is cost avoidance. We're not going to see anything from EIS for a little while because, you know, obviously we're going to be running two networks, you know, for a short period of time. So we won't see any avoidance or savings until after we, you know, get that sorted out. But in terms of um, other modernization efforts that we've taken on and completed, it's primarily been uh, cost avoidance. Uh, where we have seen cost savings, for the most part, that seems to be reinvested back into the programs at USDA. So, um, but we make sure we keep track of that and we forecast that back to the appropriate agencies and, and we have to keep track of that and report that to OMB as part of FATARA, our FATARA scorecard as well. Hey, how'd you know we were going to talk about FATARA, Gary? I, I read your mind, Jason. You read my mind. <laughs> Symbiotic. Yeah. All right. We're going to go there in a second. But before, David, if you just want to maybe talk a little bit about, you mentioned some savings too and avoidance and, and sure. how you guys are, are looking at that. With all of our services, we were spending on on an annual basis about $210, $215 million a year. I mentioned the data network. We're saving about $80 million over what we were spending it per year with that. Once we're done with our voice services transition, we're expecting to save another 20 or so million. So um, all said, we're going to probably save about 54% over what we were spending on a yearly basis before. Now, Alan, I'm going to throw it to you and put you on the spot a little bit here too. Uh, how does that compare SSA or what Gary's talking about? What are you seeing across the board as you talk to agencies about savings? Give me some more data. I can't give specific data for each agency, but there, there's important nuance between what Jeff said and what David said. In comparison, if you take the exact same type infrastructure and you put it place to place over the previous contracts to, to EIS, you're going to have significant savings. Savings in terms of cost, usually about 25% type range type area stuff. But as you move forward, in the case, you need more capacity because compute has, is changing. We need to think about edge computing. We need to think about the data centers and how we get information uh, down to the systems in order for those to, for the compute to occur. It's going to require more capacity in order for that to happen. How that capacity is delivered, for example, 
our wireless devices and how they're used today, or I should say not wireless, our mobile devices and how they're being used today and stuff requires more capacity. Uh, the ability to deliver that may be some of those cost avoidance. Future state, for example, with David may have to make more investments. For example, going from a 40 gig to a 100 gig pipe, that's going to cost more money. But his cost avoidance that he's current will allow him to increase his capacity, kind of like what Jeff said. So that savings wise, also from a from a support perspective, instead of buying the equipment and installing it, doing a as a service to where it's just delivered, that modernization, that CapEx of what you typically do, you make these major investments to buy a bunch of infrastructure. You now don't have to be concerned about those things because those investments are being made by the vendor and ensuring those technologies are kept current and vice having to make those five years, the device is going to go into the cell, seven years is going to go end of life. Now I've got to make this huge cap investment. And so there's also a benefit from that aspect. We have to take a break. You're listening to an excerpt of a panel I moderated on IT modernization and the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions or EIS program sponsored by ACT-IAC. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated at a recent webinar on IT modernization and the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions, or EIS, program sponsored by ACT-IAC. The panel featured Alan Hill, the now former Deputy Assistant Commissioner in the Office of IT Category at GSA, Jeff Flick, the Deputy Director for the Service Delivery Division at NOAA, Gary Washington, the CIO at the Department of Agriculture, and David Noggle, a Senior IT Specialist at the Social Security Administration. And for this final segment, the panelists continue to take questions from the audience. Do the panelists have confidence in their current EIS awards made to date to migrate all their legacy services to EIS, or there'll be future EIS requirements that may drive additional task orders and other awards? The question is, uh, is anything more coming or are we good where we are today? David, you want to start us off and work around the the rest of the panel? Yeah, sure. I've actually had inquiries about using the EIS contract for other services. And this is not a knock on GSA or, or the EIS contract itself. But I think we have to understand the current environment that we're in, that everybody is sucking up resources, both on the industry partner side and GSA side, on getting this transition complete. So we're not, while EIS contract is certainly a viable option, I think it benefits us to look at other contracts, um, whether they're GSA or not, to accommodate those services, just because we don't want to be in the mix and be on the tail end of this transition when we're trying to award a new contract for new services. So yes, we look at EIS, but we have to be realistic and understand what's happening behind the scenes. Uh, Gary? You know, we have a large scientific community at USDA, so we're looking at uh, EIS initially to see if we can't satisfy their requirements as well. You know, um, and if that's not the case, then we'll have to come up with another option. But just like Jeff said, in terms of continuity of services, we're going to take advantage, you know, what GSA, we've already talked to them about taking advantage of that as well. But, you know, our thing is we want to get as much out of this program as we can to deliver services to, you know, our customers and stakeholders and everything. So that's definitely the first option. And Jeff? 
Yeah, I fully anticipate that we'll have, you know, new requirements that will drop in and things will evolve over time. So, yeah, I think we'll have additional task orders coming out and look forward to that, that community mix. All right. And Alan, let me maybe back up because we had very specific answers from SSA, USDA and, and NOAA. From your perspective, what are, what are you hearing? What are the trends you're seeing about folks coming for maybe a, a second bite at the EIS Apple? There's actually several drivers. Uh, one, the cybersecurity EO. That's a huge driver. And how in and, and from a basic building out your infrastructure, you need to make sure your infrastructure secure, zero trust architect built into it. Uh, you can't do that with the legacy infrastructure. You need to modernize your infrastructure so that all the way down to the endpoint, you to the cloud and where the data traverses, that it's built throughout. And so the first foundation is to build out your infrastructure. So Zero Trust is going to drive it. Tick Creo and, and how it matures is going to be very important in making sure that that is moving from the traditional uh, moat approach to where everything's going into a centralized to all surfaces of your enterprise and be able to deliver security. So that's very important. There's opportunities going to be there. 5G and future wireless capabilities. There's going to be more in that regards. I saw the question on quantum compute. What we care about is, is the focus on how, to, whether it's EIS or any other, that the practices, the best practices and be able to do that 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 is carried throughout the vehicles, ensuring that so when when an agency goes out to, to buy, that those standards are set within the contracts so that they get consistent delivery of those services. All right. Thank you, Alan. Good good to see that this is starting to build some, some momentum. A couple other questions that came in. Kirk Holmes asks, are you expecting more private 5G networks along the carrier-provided 5G subscription services and standard Wi-Fi? Alan, I think that's your question because I have no clue what he's talking about. <laughs> okay. There's public 5G in which the carriers provide today what our phones connect to, right? Uh, that that aspect. There's also the private 5G. It kind of depends on the use case uh, of, of what you're trying to do. Uh, for example, a warehouse, full automation, you may go private 5G because you're, 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 the focus is on that footprint. From a enterprise perspective, it may make sense to use public 5G. The providers are still working through how to manage and optimize the spectrum, though, because spectrum is expensive. And if you make a decision to go private 5G, it depends. It might be what spectrum you're using. So not, not to get too technical, it's very important to understand the specific use case and whether it applies to what you're trying to solve as a business problem. It may make sense for public. It may make sense for private. You can get that on EIS. You can get it off the schedules. There's many ways for it to be offered and stuff. The Federal Mobility Group, we just finished an executive tour, and we went through and we saw both agencies and vendors uh, of what they were doing. In the case of, the, of we saw the VA, they were using it for medical reasons. They, for, they pr provided an example of where a patient left the, the hospital uh, before they were supposed to, how to track them and all that. They were using uh, augmented reality goggles and stuff. I actually put one on, sitting there moving. I was able to go inside the heart and touch things and stuff. And I had this reality. I was able to take a, a brain and move it around with my hand and stuff with these goggles on and stuff. So those are new capabilities that are, are being 
uh, delivered because of the, the 5G technology. Alan, does 5G exist? You, you got to experience it. Does it exist somewhere? Yeah, it does. So, right, uh, the, so example of the agencies, the VA has been uh, using it. FBI is building out. Uh, DOD very much into building out 5G. There are use cases in where they're actually put into to use. From an agency perspective, the question is, do I have a need for it, right? And, 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 and so I'm going to use USDA, for example. 5G, do I need it in order to support my customer, right? And what's that, what's that use case? If I have, you know, if I'm out there and I got farms and stuff, do they need the capability stuff? Is that something, a service that USDA is going to use and deliver because of IoT and how to manage that thing? Again, that's that's an agency in order where the, the use case makes sense to them. All right, very good. Let's uh, go to another question. This is kind of broadening it out, and uh, this gets into kind of EIS, but, but more more specific. Talk about panel members. Can they comment on your cloud strategies? Very simple. Gary, let me start with you. Uh, I know USDA has been on that path for quite a while. What's the latest with your cloud strategy? Where you're heading? Obviously, USDA is you know cloud first, and we we have a large uh, percentage of our systems applications in the cloud already. But EIS has given us the opportunity to rethink how our supporting infrastructure supports our cloud environment and, 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 and our cloud strategy. We're having those conversations right now and we're finding that um, EIS has also given us an opportunity to realize additional cost avoidance and become more efficient in you know, how we deliver our services through the cloud as well. Jeff, I know, uh, again, same thing. Uh, I'll throw it out to you. Do you have uh, anything you can offer about NOAA's move to the cloud? NOAA's, you know, got a relatively broad strategy because of the, the mission profile, but we've established CRADAs and, and various other vehicles to share our data for the weather community, you know, the industry, the weather industry, as well as to the public. Uh, so there's a lot of data, NOAA data out in the, in the various cloud infrastructures today. From a, an application and operations perspective, there are parts that are in hybrid, whether they're internal cloud infrastructures or both commercial clouds and uh, on-prem infrastructure. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard an excerpt of a panel I moderated at a recent webinar on IT modernization and the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions, or EIS, program sponsored by ACT-IAC. The panel featured Alan Hill, the now former Deputy Assistant Commissioner in the Office of IT Category at the General Services Administration. Jeff Flick, the Deputy Director for the Service Delivery Division at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Gary Washington, the Chief Information Officer at the Agriculture Department. And David Noggle, a Senior IT Specialist at the Social Security Administration. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Any workout, any mood, any time. 
That's what the Peloton Tread is all about. From interval runs that motivate you to go the extra mile, power walks that work up a sweat, rolling hill hikes for you to enjoy, and full body boot camps to hit your goals. Plus thousands of workouts that go beyond the tread. Strength programs, core classes, yoga, Pilates, and even boxing. Everything you need on and off the Peloton Tread. Experience it all for yourself with a 30-day home trial. Learn more at OnePeloton.com.